podcast of BIA's Leading Local Insights podcast, where we provide a deeper look into our current insights and analysis of the local media, both on the traditional and digital side. And here, especially focusing on OTT CTV. I'm Leila Chetty, Senior Media Analyst at BIA Advisory Services. Today, our guest is Kevin McGurn, who is the President of Sales and Distribution at Bevo. Kevin has a very impressive history in helping companies like Fullscreen, Crunchyroll, Rooster, Shazam, Hulu, or NBC Universal grow their sales and revenue tremendously. Uh, I'm also joined by Mitch Oscar, who is BIA's Executive Industry Advisor, covering the advanced television arena, including addressability, programmatic TV, ad-supported video on demand, and OTT. So, hello. Um, um, hello, Mitch. Nice, nice to have you today on the podcast. Um, so Thank let me you. give you a bit of context, a little bit about Vivo. Um, Vivo is the leading uh, music video network, connecting a global audience to high-quality music content for more than a decade. It was founded in 2009 by Universal Music Group and Sony Music Entertainment. Um, Vivo has consistently evolved over the past decade to be a leader within today's ever-changing music landscape, taking on several partnerships with leading distribution platforms to deliver amazing content in ad-supported environments. So without any further ado, let's get started. Um, Kevin, thanks for joining us today and welcome. We appreciate your time and contribution. And, yeah, thanks um, so much, Leila. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. We really are happy to have this um, podcast and um, we are really happy to know about your uh, contribution and what you actually think. So um, I'll start with my first question. Sure. Um, so prior to 1980, uh, music videos were rarely available on TV, um, except for late night syndicated programming that was basically static filming or rock and roll concerts. And of course, rock acts featuring live or talk variety programs. And in early 80s, then MTV comes upon uh, the scene and, and blows everything, encapsulating pop culture and dominates the airways for decades. And um, one of the few venues that attracted young adults on television and the much prized demographic for marketers, really. And then 2009, Vivo was birthed. Fast forward to 2022, Vivo is recognized as one of the dominant distribution platforms for accessing music videos. So in your own words, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how Vivo came about and its current place in the realm of music video consumption today. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the history, as you just laid out, is, is really an interesting one for us and an interesting one for the music industry. Um, noting that music videos were largely promotional and, you know, MTV was a great vessel for those music videos as advertisements, if you will, for hard goods sales um, in record stores. And over the decades, as you mentioned, the, you know, that network built itself up um, and gained huge audiences based around youth culture. And we're able to parlay that into what was predominantly reality television, right? You know, so um, unscripted shows that were still meant to hit that same demographic at the start, but then age with that demographic um, through the decades as they got older. And, you know, coming into the 2000s, 
you know, obviously with um, with the advent of YouTube, music videos began to get distributed, you know, widely on digital means. And, you know, we were set up originally as a YouTube first company, and we were meant to just create a higher level of monetization on that platform, um, you know, in addition to and in complement to the auction based revenue that was coming through AdSense. And, you know, all the while, I think what had happened was the programming of music videos on linear television declined um, and the rise of digital distribution of music videos increased. Um, and as linear televisions kind of progressed from a technological standpoint, uh, now with smart TVs and obviously a lot of the connected television platforms and OTT devices, um, what happened to our business and what happened to the genre of content in hindsight is quite logical, but not too many folks would have predicted it, um, which is to say music videos and the genre of music television is at home um, on the big screen in the living room. And, you know, we were able to notice trends with YouTube um, right around 2017, 2018, where the YouTube connected television app had a massive surge in viewers transitioning from mobile viewership into connected television viewership. And one of the content genres that over-indexed heavily for being watched on television was the music video. Um, so we took that cue and then went out into the marketplace and developed a distribution network of companies that would more closely align with the thought and with the with the logo recognition of television. Um, because YouTube wasn't getting that credit in market at the time. So we were able to diversify our distribution and then start to really, you know, reinvent and rediscover the art of programming, um, the art of building, you know, linear 24-7 channels. And the barrier to entry being quite lower um, for an electronic programming guide and 24-7 programming and, you know, dynamic ad insertion um, into television environments created a really big opportunity for the music video to come back. And what we now know is that you know, the fans want to see their favorite artists um, on the big screen in high definition as they are shot, um, you know, and see them over long periods of time with lengths of tune that are exceeding an hour on average. So we were very excited about that. And then you know, from a business standpoint, we launched into what, what any good business folks would do is we started to go back to old playbooks and look at how television is meant to be run from an advertising perspective, how it's meant to be run both um, you know, nationally and locally, um, look at the measurement of demography, look at the, you know, the standards and practices that um, would be best suited for those environments, and then look at, you know, look at all of the diversification of the advertising market that we can layer over top of it, be it you know, CTV direct, addressability, um, programmatic television, obviously our launch of multicultural um, and Somos Vivo at the head of that strategy, um, really developing total uh, unique networks based on content genre or decades that people wanted to watch. Um, so we really took our cues from, uh, you know, from history and we're, we're big fans of learning about how things were done at, the, at their best and, and then using technology and platforms 
to enhance that and to make a music television experience like it was meant to be. That's really cool to see how Vivo evolved. On as a consumer, I, I've always thought that Vivo had such a great quality content, and um, just you know the latest trends were on Vivo. So um, that's really awesome to know the history a little bit more. You were mentioning the business model, so let's dive a little bit more into that. How was the distribution handled domestically and internationally? Is it different? And for listeners to this podcast who are not really familiar with Vivo, uh, where can they engage? Yeah, so you had mentioned at the top of the show, we're a joint venture of the major music labels um, in Universal and Sony. And for connected television, we also have a deal with Warner and then hundreds of independent labels as well. So the content licensing that we start with is on the label side of the business. And that is fairly... um, you know, borderless, if you will. Th- those rights do extend out into multiple markets. We operate in clear market, uh, clear rights in 55 markets. The publishing side is, does become a bit more localized. So in the United States, it's fairly, you know, it's fairly well covered by just a few. Um, but as you go country by country, you have to clear publishing rights through various other PRO uh, firms. So we've done that. That's one of the hard things to do in our business. And we took quite a while to clear those rights and to to garner, you know, not just digital rights, but rights on, you know, connected television as well. Um, and we do operate, you know, sales in, um, like I mentioned, 55 markets, but really the mass majority of our revenue on a direct basis is coming from 14 or 15 key markets. Um, we have offices in the United Kingdom. Uh, we have offices in Sydney, Australia, uh, and then throughout the United States. And we also cover Canada and Mexico from the U.S. So, um, you know, it's not so much the rights because I think the popularity of music is borderless. So we had to clear that piece up. So we could create a business that truly was global. And it's it's not easy to do with lots of different genres of content, dramas, comedies, reality, um, film. But for music, because the, the length of the, the tracks are so short that they are so widely distributed on digital platforms like YouTube. So you take a more ubiquitous distribution strategy. Um, it's not about owning you know, the pipe or owning the end experience for the user. It's about taking advantage of everyone else's end experience um, and the platforms that they are going out and developing audiences for, and then curating a great lineup of content and subsidizing that with advertising revenue. Um, so our revenue is, is again, 100% advertising based. And we go to each country, learn about what they're measuring, how they're measuring, who they're measuring with, um, what their demand is in the market, be it linear, video on demand, you know, programmatic, or simply just digital video. And we cater to those markets in that way. The mass majority of the demand that we see, and obviously this is what we promote um, specifically, is through connected television. So we reach 25% of every country's audience um, population on a monthly basis in every country that we clear rights in. Um, So that's the minimum, um, many of which we we reach over a third of that country's population on a monthly basis. So that's a really strong position to start from um, when you're comparing yourself to, you know, relatively smaller pools of competition in those markets outside of the United States, because there's just fewer channels than what 
the U.S. has to offer. Um, we're a heavily fragmented cable market. Most countries have you know, some government-run uh, broadcast networks and then a few paid uh, networks as well on top of that. Um, so, you know, in certain ways, that's great for us. And in other ways, it, it makes it a little bit more competitive, a little harder to break in. But um, we've done a really good job of telling that story um, in, in English-speaking markets to start, where, you know, Western music travels really well and, and international music travels back to the United States. And then we've broken, uh, you know, a lot of ground in Western Europe, um, and we're starting to break uh, some big ground in APAC and Latin America as well. That's really impressive to see the the trade routes, you know, of how music travels. And you mentioned 25% or even one third, which is very impressive. Um, what type of audiences does Vivo attract? And how do you um, quantify and qualify the unique nature of its value proposition for marketers and viewers? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial in that, you know, the existing linear television landscape is is shrinking uh, in terms of its audience and it's getting older. Um, so we're sort of the uh, reciprocal of that. We're quite a young audience and we're growing on a monthly basis and an annual basis. So that's a good place to start from. Um, however, you know, the music experience that these fans um, are tuning into Vivo to get is very much a one of cultural relevance of voice. Um, and the market that we serve has has both a youthful audience, you know, 18 to 24, 18 to 34, as well as a nostalgic audience that, you know, harkens back to you know, the music videos that we grew up with watching, you know, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, and those are huge uh, decade-based channels that we have on APGs and they're big, you know, playlists that we have inside of our video on demand applications and playlists inside of YouTube. So I would say it's a really good spread. Um, you know, our, we're over 70%, 18 to 49. Um, so we can serve a really robust audience um, and compare that to, you know, a, a very efficient delivery uh, compared to a lot of the broadcast networks that are out there that are struggling to get their audience below 50. So um, so we've been doing that, you know, and measuring it for quite some time, you know, with Nielsen here in the U.S. and in any market that Nielsen can get us some help in. And then we use some more uh, s s some more localized measurement in other uh, territories where we're clearing more television type dollars. Thanks, Kevin. I think um, having a young youth uh, audience that's connected to, you know, CTV is really a plus, especially nowadays in, in digital. Um, so I wanted to dive a little more into the advertiser standpoint. Um, so when when advertisers run campaign on Vivo, do budgets come from traditional ad agency defined verticals, for example, like CTV, digital video or um, TV network channels? Or is the platform really uniquely positioned that it is not restricted to a specific media from a budgetary um, standpoint? Yeah, we're we're certainly equal opportunity on any line of revenue that you want to uh, contribute our way. Um, and we do see lots of different line items on media plans coming to us. Um, it's predominantly a demographic strategy that folks are getting um, you know, interested in Vivo and reaching guaranteed audiences um, with very limited frequency, which is something that we've been very proud of uh, from the get go. We have very high reach, very low frequency. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we do is is guarantee 
um, you know, GRPs and TRPs for sure. So otherwise, you know, in the digital video landscape, it may be ownership, it may be promotional, it may be sponsorship driven, where folks are interested in aligning their content with a specific artist or the premiere of a video um, or the genre uh, of a of a content type in, in, inside of a channel and then you know, targeted throughout run of network on on our uh, on our videos, for instance, for country or for hip hop. So um, I would say we are um, we're able to take programmatic money. We're able to take digital video money. Um, we're able to take you know linear television money on a guaranteed um, GRP basis and and everything in between. We don't really restrict ourselves for how we approach the market. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and we've been all reading lately um, that all the TV broadcast networks, the cable networks, the TV platforms have have done in the upfront in terms of CPM and market share year over year. So I was wondering how you guys have been doing this year. Yeah, we've been really fortunate to have some great upfront movement. Um, I think you know we are able to start grabbing share of dollars transitioning into connected television. Um, we are representing a very large growth category of audience and of inventory. So that's been a position of strength for us. Um, and the agencies are recognizing that and voting with their dollars um, and shifting money towards this content genre. And it's, you know, it's not something out of the ordinary. It's not like it, it requires a tremendous amount of selling to convince folks that, you know, there's big audiences and youthful audiences watching music videos on TV because most of the folks that are in that buyer's market remember, you know, music television um, as it originated. And then they see how, you know, how we present that content to the end user and they are themselves fans. Right. You know, I always think that particularly when you're when you're representing a platform and we, we represented Hulu for a long time. Um, they were people were fans of Hulu. They liked the user experience. They liked the content, um, and they could understand why advertising was successful. The same thing goes for Vivo. Vivo being more of a network, not a platform, but our network is very intuitive. People understand why it's popular. They understand the the you know, the pervasive nature of of hitting different audiences um, with targeted campaigns, and so that's how dollars shift and their measurement is. Um, synonymous with you know what they see out in the market with parity, we allow a lot of flexibility in measurement, and we allow a lot of flexibility in the way that people buy with us and are able to you know cancel their campaigns as well. So um, we don't have any linear businesses, any legacy businesses to protect. So we're able to be a little bit more with the times um, for what's in demand in the marketplace, a much more diverse set of content, diverse audience, um, and you know obviously. We are big on that on a national basis. Um, we can sell down to a zip plus four on a local basis. We can sell multicultural audiences in any um, in, in any genre that you would like. So I think our flexibility gives us optionality when it goes out to the marketplace, and that marketplace has been calling for optionality um, for for quite some time. Um, thank you. Um, that was really insightful. Um, so, you know, our focus at BIA is, is local media. And I was wondering, um, what are the opportunities for local advertisers to engage uh, with Vivo? And, and what are the challenges for you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, so we've we've worked uh, pretty closely with, with MediaOcean and Strata here in the United States. Um, we do get some localized campaigns outside of the U.S. as well, but it's more of a, you know, the local market is a bit more um, robust here in the U.S. So we run our business just like a cable network would run their business. Um, we have a local sales team. We go out to the major holding groups and we cut local, you know, rate cards for them as well. Um, but when I think we really started to hit our stride with local advertising in the last election cycle. Uh, that was where we were able to really prove out a high level of targetability and a deliverability against a large audience with limited frequency. Um, and, you know, we obviously are coming into another election cycle this fall, and we are already seeing a lot of demand on that inventory, um, you know, on top of what we were able to clear through the upfront. So I would say on a local basis, our strengths in market are certainly, you know, retail QSR and auto. Um, obviously, there's some softness in those markets right now, uh, given the macroeconomic uh, environment that we're living in. Um, but the political landscape is one where, you know, w where we do see a big surge uh, coming through the back half of the year in terms of spending. And, you know, we're just refining and, and trying to get more coverage, to be honest. It's a very large market to cover. And we try to operate a very scaled um, sales team, you know, kind of lean and mean. So, you know, we're we're actively looking out there for larger partnerships, things that we can scale um, and going direct to client and, and trying to grab local budgets where we have some strength in national already. And uh, and we've been doing it quite successfully. We, we certainly can do more. I think it's one of the I, I think it's one of the areas of our business where we're not getting the representative share of market. Uh, when we were at Hulu, we got almost up to 40 percent of our business was uh, was local. Uh, insertion. And we would love to get there at Vivo as well. I think that's a very healthy place to be, not just from an advertising revenue standpoint, but from a diversification of the ads that that viewers see um, to make a better user experience. So um, so we're pushing that way and, and we've got some big goals in front of us, but local is a huge opportunity for us, um, not just this year, but in the years to come. Yes, it seems like it's a, it's a really good opportunity for a lot of CTV and OTT. Um, and we're seeing kind of the same businesses as well, you know, growing in that uh, platform. So I uh, also wanted to know if you had some last thoughts for audiences to share with us. Now, we, we've done quite a bit of work um, looking at how viewers view using um, companies like T-Vision, for instance, to understand the attentiveness of the viewer. Um, we started out with T-Vision to try to establish and did establish a co-viewing metric. Uh, and we've you know, validated that through Nielsen's, uh, Nielsen's um, methodology as well. But you know, we also were very curious about how people were watching, not just when they were watching and for how long. But were they attentive? Were they were their heads down on their mobile phones or were their eyes up on the television? And we have an incredible, you know, uh, set of data that, um, you know, music videos are one of the more engaged types of content. And not only is it some of the most popular, I mean, you look at some of our big distribution partners like Samsung TV Plus and Roku channels and Pluto TV, um, where we're top three, top five channels uh, on those services. But we're also, according to T-Vision, one of the most highly engaged genres of content where people are actually watching the screen. And I think that comes down to a few things. I think it's the audio and video, um, you know, that obviously is so popular and so engaging. 
But I, but I also think it's uh, you know something that has to do with the star power of the the folks that are are in the videos themselves and, and our artists. Um, it's a really big opportunity for advertisers to align themselves with the biggest stars in the world, and that our content is in four minute four minute lengths, right? So you have to pay attention to what's going on in front of you. You know, it's um, it's an opportunity for us to program great, um, you know, great recommendations, great playlists for people to continue to watch. But it's also a risk, right? You know, so if you're watching Netflix, you can have, you know, this is up next or this is recommended to you every 22 or 44 minutes or 120 minutes. We have that every four minutes, um, and we have lots of different, you know, channels that you can go to um, that create an on-demand feel out of a linear environment. But we are truly good at programming for linear environments and the advertisers and the measurement of the engagement are are really supporting that theory um, that we're doing a great job of of picking what's next and picking what's hot. Thanks, Kevin. I mean, I think it's it's really interesting that you have such a short content and people, you know, attention is short. So it's really a different, I would say, model and in, in the way you approach it and compare it to Netflix, like you mentioned. So thanks so much for sharing that thought. And so, Kevin, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, we're coming to the end of our podcast. Um, this was really great, informative insights. I'm sure our audience is going to enjoy that as well. I would also let, like to let our listeners know that um, we've done a white paper in collaboration with Vivo on CTV, which was published last week. And if you'd like to know more information about it or suggest any ideas and speakers for our future BIA podcasts, please feel free to email us at podcast at BIA.com. Thanks also, Mitch, for joining us today. So on behalf of my colleagues and BIA and the podcast audiences, we appreciate your valuable time and sharing what's like to be a leading OTT platform. And for our listeners, we so appreciate you tuning in and we look forward to you joining us on the next podcast. So please stay tuned and have a great day.